Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <sighs> that sucks. <laughs> Let me just do it one more fucking time. Oh, because you're doing it live. Why did that happen? Well, now you can do it better. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> let me float, let me float down the Kahulawasi with Bird Reynolds and John Voight, Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty. Pay some fellers $40 to drive their cars to Aintree. The hillbillies gave them willies cause they're boys from the city. Today, today, on Cinema Possessed. Today, today, on Cinema Possessed. Today, today, deliverance, liberance, liberance, deliverance, liberance, liberance. Deliverance, liberance, liberance Deliverance, liberance They got shivers on the river when they saw the mountain men Can't imagine what would happen and they thought it was the end But Bird Reynolds saves the day and put an arrow through their heart Now they're in a moral quandary, should they tell or should they not? Today, today on cinema possessed deliverance who can say why Bert's back hurts probably cause Bert did his own stunts and who can say shot or was he not only Cox only Ronnie Cox only Ronnie Cox None of that authentic laughter from the first take. <laughs>
Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name is Jack Bishop. And I'm Justin Nisham. And each week, we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be tossed into the beautiful, roaring rapids of the Kahulawasi River. Did you look it up? Is it a real river? It's not. Mm. It was shot on the... Chattooga River mm-hmm. uh, in Georgia. You ever been floating? Have not. Have Ever you? floated? Oh yeah, floated many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The Buffalo River in in uh, in Arkansas is big mm-hmm. uh, big floating river. Done that many times. Mm-hmm. Fun. It's good times. Uh, and watching this movie definitely gives me the feels mm-hmm. of floating in a good way. Sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. in a bad way. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's always this that is fear. the feel good floating movie of the year. I'd agree. Yeah. Of the year of 1972. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and just introduce Corn Wallace here. Uh, with us here is Corey Clifford. Woo-woo. Corey, uh, you've been floating, correct? Oh, my God. So many times. So many times. And I, I mentioned this to Jack and Justin. There were so many times that in high school, we would take girls trips, like just me and my like best girlfriends and do exactly what they're doing in deliverance. And when I think about that, I'm like, as teenagers, like 16, 17, we'd be like, bye, we're going for the weekend. And we would just rent canoes and we would camp. But you would probably never pay men to take your cars. Never in a million years. Mm-hmm. We were avoiding men at all costs. But some of the things that we did on those trips, I'm like, we were very lucky. Yeah. Because we were not being safe you- in a lot of ways. Did you wear life jackets? Oh my God, never. Mm. You don't. And we had them, but I mean, we were all really good swimmers, but that's not still an excuse because the Buffalo River does not really ever become like the one in Deliverance where there's rapids like that. There it's are a rapids com- and they are kind of like precarious at very times. Very little, it's not though. Like it's, it's very calm, but yeah. Floating yeah. is one of my favorite things. I love it. Before we get into the movie, uh, I have some more physical media news. A local Los Angeles video store that has been shut down since the year 2017 is reopening. Vidiots. Have you heard? Didn't the Duplass brothers? A whole bunch of celebrities uh, contributed to revive this place. Uh, It's reopening and it's coming back strong. It's going to have a newly renovated video store with over 50,000 VHS, DVD, Blu-rays that you can rent. But they also are putting in a bar and a movie theater. Whoa, they're hiring. And they're hiring. We can all get work. That'd be fun to work for a summer. (laughs) Yeah. It's opening in June, so um, that's that's big news. If it was closer, I would go. If it, the bar, I would go try and get a bartending yeah. gig there. That'd it's always cool. nice to see more uh, video rental places staying alive, and it can join back in with the ranks of the videotechs and the cinephiles. Uh, now we just got to see if we can get that um, Eddie Brant's vault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to get that one back. I think Tarantino actually owns that collection now. Wow. Justin... What movie are we watching today? We're watching 1972's Deliverance, directed by Sir John Borman. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. Where are you going, city boy? We'll find it. It ain't nothing but the biggest river in the state. These are the man who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river. You look around, you Lewis. He could be out there anywhere watching us right now. We ain't gonna be so hard to follow dragging a corpse. 
John Boorman's film of James Dickey's explosive best-selling novel, Deliverance. Justin, how did you watch this film? I watched this film on a Digibook Blu-ray. Love it. And That's I read cool. this film on first edition hardcover. Oh, wow. first edition hardcover, baby. Mm -hmm. I went all out for this one. Hell yeah. I got to say the book is dope. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to spoil mine, but I got a first edition Ooh. paperback, bitch. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I reread portions of it, but I read this probably three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I went back and reread some portions of it. And yeah, it's a great book. Can I read real quick the author bio on the back Please. of this? Yeah. This reads like a parody our friend Bob wrote. Okay. So just imagine Bob <laughs> writing yeah. this while, while yeah. I read it. Yeah. James Dickey has been a star college athlete, football at Clemson and track at Vanderbilt, a night fighter pilot with over 100 missions in World War II and Korea, <laughs> and a successful advertising executive in New York and Atlanta. He became a full-time poet at the age of 38, publishing in virtually every American journal of consequence. And five years later, in 1966, won the National Book Award in Poetry for Buck Dancer's Choice. The same year, he was appointed poetry consultant to the Library of Congress. And in 1967, the publication of his collected volume, Poems 1957 to 1967, was hailed as one of the literary events of the decade. Mr. Dickey, who is an avid woodsman, mm -hmm. archer, and guitarist, has taught at Reed College, Rice Institute, and the universities of Florida and Wisconsin, and has lectured on scores of platforms across the country. Married and the father of two sons, he presently lives in Columbia, South Carolina, where he is poet in residence at the University of South Carolina. Deliverance, which he began in 1962, is Mr. Dickey's first novel. Wow. From from what I gathered, listening to John Borman, a lot of that's bullshit. Mm. So James Dickey was this sort of rock star poet in the 1970s. He could sell out auditoriums. He would go to college campuses and just enrapture people with all the adventures he had incurred over his life. And John Borman, the director of this film, said that uh, as he got to know Dickey, he started to see that there was a lot of imagination in these stories. He would tell everybody that this book, The Deliverance, really happened to him. He painted himself as being basically the Burt Reynolds character. But then Borman tells a story that like he then went canoeing with James Dickey and he said in the first five minutes, Dickey capsized his canoe and he realized right then and there, this didn't, he's not this guy. And then he uh, spoke to somebody who was doing a biography on James Dickey and he casually mentioned, oh, it, it's so fascinating that he was like a fighter pilot and the, and the journalist was like, he, he was never a fighter pilot. Wow. He just tells people. <laughs> so maybe I feel like we've mentioned this on another podcast, but maybe this is the character that Nick Nolte was based off of. Oh, for yeah. For Tropic, for Tropic Thunder. Thunder. Yeah. Have we said that before? On yes. The pod? In Starship Troopers, yeah. the army, uh, I forget his name, who oh, trained yes. all, the, yep. all the actors, uh -huh. potentially could have been a fraud. Right. But James this Dickey, feels more like. More like it. And yeah. James Dickey's son even admits to it nowadays. Yeah. He's like, yeah, my dad like was a storyteller. He yeah. liked to entertain and he liked to get people excited. And yeah, he exaggerated things and doesn't tell the whole truth about his life, but it's all in an effort to <laughs> yeah, just why be not? captivating. Harmless lies. Corey once lied to me for two years. Stop. She told me that she was bit by a shark. Okay. No, 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 no. You know this story, Justin. That is not how it was. I, I had a burn mark on my leg that, that Jack was- A burn scar from? From a hair straightener. 
but that had she burned her leg with a hair straightener. But the, wait, okay, we're in the car, and Jack. I don't know. Maybe you asked how I got that, and I, I go, oh, it was a shark bite, and you know, and and, and you're also how old? A teenager, sixteen. Yes, and yeah. like, and I'm. This saying is before it, we were dating. I am saying it as a joke, like, oh, I got bit by a shark. It was when so we you had this whole Corpus story about Christi. being on the beach and getting bit by a small shark, and, and it caused then a scar. Years later, Jack. After we, asked me about we start it. dating, <laughs> we fall in love, we make plans to be with each other for oh the rest of our God. lives. Somebody asked me about it. I was like, oh yeah, it's a hair straightener, and Jack's like, what? I thought you were bit by a shark. I had told multiple people that she had been bit by a shark. <laughs> Truly if I believed had it. actually been bit by a shark, that would be the first story I told every person I've ever met. It was the first story I was telling them. Guys, I have a confession. Hmm. Oh my god, my back doesn't hurt. It's <laughs> all been a lie. Faking it the whole time. You're just like milking sympathy yeah. out of like us. Attention. The doctors looked at my spine and said it was the healthiest spine they've ever seen. <laughs> the spine of a twelve year old. Yeah. So. You like the, well, you've got a Blu-ray here. I have this very old DVD. This is actually the first snap case on the pod. So this mm-hmm. is, um, if anybody ever bought like a Warner Brothers DVD back in the day, they came in these nice paper um, and plastic snap cases. Mm-hmm. You hear this? A lot of Ooh, new lines. New, uh, Warner Brothers, you mentioned that's new line. The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Blade came in a case like that. Yeah. I like the cases. Um, I just don't like the way they sit on the shelf next to the other. They're a little case. thinner. Yeah. I have to say, my transfer did not look good. It didn't really hurt our viewing experience, but it mm-hmm. looked kind of like garbage. And uh, the only special feature on this is one five minute making of that's from the 70s. It's like a 16 millimeter Mm -hmm. making of. It was interesting, but it only lasts about five minutes. I love your cover um, would be really fucking cool if it didn't have those two photos on it. Just just the the art. But that's not in the movie. Nope. No. Yeah. yeah, That the, the image on the poster of the double barrel shotgun coming out of the water is not taken from the film. Yours is kind of a shitty cover, I got to say. Yeah, Burt Reynolds is like photoshopped like uh, <laughs> like nobody's business. Yeah. Yeah, his um, face looks very It's not yeah. like a poster. It's definitely like a modern photoshop. He's got the iPhone 13 Blu-ray. Pro effect. Yeah. I like how it looks like a book though. I like yeah. these Digi books are been great. bringing in. Yeah. Digi books are my favorite. And what's your tagline on your cover? What did happen on the Kahulawasi River? I don't have a tagline on my cover, but the tagline on the inside, which is not the original, is this is the weekend they didn't play golf. Like that Which tagline too. Hilarious. I think that was what was like on all the original posters and yeah. stuff too. I got to see this um, projected on film, 35 millimeter at the New Beverly Cinema about three months ago. And it was fantastic. How did the day for night stuff look on film? It always looks bad. Yeah. The, we'll get to that. But the day for night technology was not up to speed mm. at this point. And uh, there's an unfortunate looking sequence due to it, but uh, mm-hmm. what was your relationship to this film? Not much of a story here. Um, I think this was like a later in life film, either film student or post-college yeah. watch. Really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. No and doubt you had heard of Deliverance. Heard of it, yeah. You can't, It's a, Deliverance is kind of one of those movies in pop culture, you really can't escape references. Mm-hmm. Most people probably have not seen the film, but they are very aware of it and probably have an image in their mind of what the movie is based on the way it's been sort of humorously embraced throughout pop culture. Yeah. Looney Tunes cartoons reference deliverance. You know, as a little kid, you get little references to the movie. You don't even know mm-hmm. it. My dad and his brothers were, this is like a movie that they talked about all the time. So I had this awareness of deliverance from a very early age, but it was this kind of off limits movie to me. I'd always been told 
you can see that when you're older, you can't watch it now. And my dad had always said, I want to be with you when you watch it. So it was this sort of hollowed movie that I knew a lot of my, they would quote it a lot. They wouldn't quote the lines that you think. They weren't quoting, you know, he's got a purdy mouth and mm. squeal like a pig. <laughs> they would quote the lines like, uh, I love the way you wear that hat. You don't know nothing. Yeah. Ned Beatty has a great line at the end of the movie where he says, his corn is special. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> so there's like that's lines like corn. that that my uncles would quote. So I had an awareness of this movie, but I knew I couldn't see it. And then uh, I remember somewhere in the early 90s, a friend of my brother named Chris made us a mixtape. And the mixtape opened with Bush's Machine Head. And it was followed by Blind Melon's No Rain. Mm -hmm. And then the third song was dueling banjos. Wow. And I remember hearing it and being like, what is this magical song? <laughs> and my dad being like, that's from Deliverance. And so from then I was like, I really want to see this movie. Like this movie is holding a lot of uh, power over me and, that, and I'm not allowed to see it. Well, and it's a Southern movie too. Do you think it was a little bit more on people's radar? Maybe. Than... Yeah. I mean, I think there was probably within like the circle of my dad's side of the family, there was probably a sense of pride about it that they had for, they, you know, they had a sense of pride for the movie, uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is mm -hmm. a pretty bad Bigfoot movie, but it was made in Arkansas by an Arkansas filmmaker named Charles B. Pierce. And they just loved it. And, you know, instilled a great love of it in me well before I ever even saw that movie as well. So, yeah, I think the Southern pride, very much like Sling Blade, is probably there. My dad eventually came to me and said, Deliverance is going to show on Turner Classic Movies this week. Do you want to watch it? And I remember being very excited about it. I was probably 11 or 12 at this point. I was actually going to get to watch the movie that I'd heard so much about. I told Jack this yesterday, but Justin, yesterday I was on the phone with my mom, who's a big... Um, fan of the podcast. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, we're about to do Deliverance. And she was like, oh, I remember when I saw that movie. She was like, yeah, I saw it um, on a field trip. And I was like, <laughs> excuse me? Literally just of watching the movie. She was in ninth grade, which was still junior high for her. Her Spanish class. Wow. What does that have to do with Nothing. I think the teacher just was like, I need something to do with these kids and took them on a field trip to see Deliverance. Can you imagine seeing that? I think between- In the theaters, between 1972. This, between this and the field trip to the prison, Arkansas just has the best field trips. Well, my mom, this is Texas. This is oh, Texas. Oh, that's right. She was the in South, Corpus Christi. The South has the best field trip. Yeah, what the fuck? When she told me, I was like, were you scared? She was like, I remember it so vividly. I was like, were people like freaked out? And she was like, it was scary, definitely. And I was like, do you think, did your teacher seem like, oh, I fucked up? And she was like, no, mm -hmm. no. I was like, that's the wildest way I can't even imagine. Yeah. And did anybody, we could talk about this later too, but did anybody express concern about the way Southerners were portrayed in this movie? No, I don't think so. Well, because everybody in the movie is a Southerner. Well, technically, yeah, they're all yeah. from Georgia. Yeah, yeah. but this uh, maybe like the a potential stereotype yeah. of the rural. But Southern. that, but the that, that exists. Well, it, one, yes, this doesn't mean there aren't people like this. But I think the reputation of this movie is that it's exploitative at that stuff. But as we'll go when we go through the movie, there are a lot of positive depictions of. Southern people, even the backwoods mountain people. Sure, there there are implications in the movie and heavy, more heavily in the book that in this particular area where they go, there's a there's allusions to inbreeding. Oh yeah, allusions mm -hmm. to. But as you know, I think there's James Dickey's version of the film, and then I think there's John Borman's version. I don't think the book is quite as much of a subversion to things like toxic masculinity as the film is. 
because I think John Borman is bringing a lot of that stuff. And I think John Borman brings a lot of heart to the local people. And he even talks about in the, um, in the commentary how the reason he explained, and this is, I don't, I have not fact checked this, but he explains that the reason for the inbreeding in this area of the country is because the people in this, in these mountain towns were descendants of white communities who married into Native American communities. And because that was so taboo at the time, they were shunned by both the white communities and the Native American communities. They were ostracized. And they, all they could do was breed within themselves. And so the, his explanation of why there even is inbreeding going on here is a is a fairly sympathetic one. Really. Sure, but none of that is really like uh, addressed in the film. And we're, there's a long history of books, art, movies, that do depict mm -hmm. that stereotype. So you're coming off the heels of all of that. Um, you know, just wondering about that stereotype in general. Like if it oh, yeah. if it bothers you, if it if it feels like it something doesn't. that like harms the the relationship well, people have to the South. I think the same reason why this movie became a joke in a lot of ways. Part of that is because it deals with such touchy emotional subject matter especially for men speaking of which should we should we give a trigger warning to our audience that there's some themes discussed on this podcast sure, that yeah, might yeah. be alarming you know if for you're some. listening to a deliverance podcast you probably are aware that there's going to be some some heavy discussions but just as a trigger warning like we will be discussing certain Sex, scenes in this film that, sexual assault and yeah exactly and so rape. just be be alert the natural thing for people to do to like not confront the vulnerability of that is to turn it into a joke because they don't want to actually deal with the they don't want to confront the actual um emotions mm -hmm. that this movie is portraying i will say in defense of james dickey mm -hmm. my read through of it i do remember hearing john borman saying that he felt like he was bringing more of the man versus nature to it uh, the the environmental mm -hmm. aspects of the mm -hmm. movie and i felt like James Dickey did a great job of weaving that in. I mean, the last. Oh, yeah. I think James Dickey is all about the environmentalist. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's more the, the deconstruction of masculinity that maybe comes a little more from Borman. But I do feel like James Dickey has heavy, heavy themes of male and male attraction that the movie does not have. What the book does for me better than the movie, because it, it's a book and because it could it can really get inside the mm -hmm. head of ed yeah we hear constantly how ed is feeling when he looks at, at lewis, lewis. Yeah. wait which one is ed ed is john, is john Voight. voight's character and lewis is burt reynolds okay every yeah, yeah, time yeah. throughout the book and in the movie ed admires lewis yes. like his commitment to survivalism his strength his boldness his attitude that often gets them into trouble you know, it frightens Ed a little bit, but he kind of likes it. Mm. But the book goes further and you see him ogling him a lot more, kind of drooling over his body, fantasizing about holding on to him. Right. There is, um, you know, a part of Lewis that is a part of Ed too. It's like, it could be viewed as Ed, uh, Lewis is the anima inside Ed, the uh -huh. the person that's going to come out of him by the end of the movie. Yeah. So Lewis exists in Ed, but he's, you know, 
He's looking at him with yeah. an admiration that feels more than just friendly. The, the the title deliverance, the word deliverance literally means like to be rescued from something. It's like salvation from a place. Obviously, when you watch the movie, you can say, oh, it's called deliverance because they need to be rescued. They're in a shitty situation. They need to survive. But uh, the the book makes very clear that a lot of the reason for these men going on this trip is because they need deliverance from their ordinary boring existences as like city people. Right. And particularly with Ed in the book, Ed is a, he's an advertising, he works at an advertising agency and he like fantasizes constantly. He fantasizes about having sex with other women. He's, he's a married man with a child and he appreciates that, but he also, he needs to go on these trips with Lewis as like an escape, mm-hmm. as like a getting in touch with his masculine side and it's a deliverance from his quote unquote boring life that he's sort of taking for granted. Yeah. And I think the the point of this movie, so that we don't get too in the weeds on the book, you know, we're still talking about the movie. I think the point of the movie is that if they're all going out there to get a taste of what it's like to be a man, they all get more than they bargained for. And they all come out realizing that right. there is toxicity in what they perceive as being the uber man, the masculine, yeah. playing the game and being good at it. Well, why I like talking about the book more so than any other movie, it's not like we're watching The Relic and talking about the <laughs> mo- the book adaptation of Which The Relic. Which we must do. Yeah, we will eventually. This was written by James Dickey. He is the screenwriter. He's mm-hmm. the He has the sole credit. He feels to me like a just as visionary oh, of yeah. an aspect of the movie, him and his book, um, as John Borman. Obviously, John Borman brings... Um, well, you know. I th- to me, it's like, we'll talk about how much of a stud Burt Reynolds is in this mm-hmm. movie and how cool and electrifying he is. But I think there's a ton of details in this movie that point to the fact that Burt Reynolds is a bit of a fraud himself. Mm-hmm. And he's not the, he's not the ultimate survivalist who knows everything. He's not as in touch with these people as he thinks he is. He is still a city boy, just like the rest of them. And I think a lot of that comes from Borman because I think Dick he really does look at Lewis as like the strongest version of a man you could be. I think Borman definitely takes it mm-hmm. there. It's a, it's still, it's, I think it's the genius of James Dickey that there even is that sort of idea that he's not saying um, this is like a God figure right. who is invulnerable. I mean, he still breaks. It's true. He's out of commission the, for the, half the movie. Yeah. The content of the film <laughs> is screaming, yeah. crying, the plot. Yeah. What happens in the movie is what happens in the book. The book is yeah. very close to the film. Well, there's that, that one, I think that one scene maybe you're referring to where he's sleeping in the tent and uh, John Voight wakes him up and he's like curled in the fetal like position and he goes, yeah. <laughs> he whines, he whimpers. But um, Which is a foreshadowing moment because it's essentially the way he's going to become. Yeah, but it's brilliant. Film. It's oh, brilliant. I, and, I think this movie is just an incredible. He's still five-star a badass, though. He's still uh, oh, yes. he's undoubtedly incredibly a talented, yes. incredibly powerful. I mean, he saves the day. Undoubtedly. But what I like about this movie is that all the violence in this movie has no glory to it. Yeah. So that moment you're mentioning, Bert. Reynolds does come and save the day. And there is like a brief momentary relief when that happens, but it's instantly subverted because the one, they have to watch the guy die and it's so disturbing. And then two, the second that that happens, the dread and the terror of now, what do we do? Immediately just crashes upon them. There's no glory whatsoever. This movie must have had some impact on very bad things. There's a whole slew of movies, very bad things, Judgment Night, Mm -hmm. Green Room, 
has a lot of deliverance mm-hmm. in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's that's what I like about these older movies that I feel we don't see a lot anymore mm-hmm. is everything is all about today amplifying as much as we can the most violence, the most killing, the most right. blockbuster epic thing you can. And this movie treats a death with the weight oh. that a death deserves. Oh. The, the the when Burt Reynolds comes in and saves the day and kills the rapist mountain man, that would be the ending of most movies. Yeah. And the movie would end and you would never think twice about the repercussions of that. It's a real moral quandary that is perfect because you as an audience member are like, I don't know what the right decision yeah. is. To I'm do. still thinking about yeah. it. I'm still questioning what the actual right thing to do is. Because Burt Reynolds makes great points. Mm-hmm. Ronnie Cox, who is sort of the moral compass, the moral conscious of the group, also makes great points, but none of them are Bobby. Yeah. None of them were have been raped. And so like, and you have Ed basically in the middle of it being like, I don't know what to fucking do. And we talked on the on the Evil Dead episode about sort of the the rape scene in that film and how it was not necessary, we felt. You know, like you could lose it and it doesn't make the movie worse. In fact, it might even make the movie better because it totally clashes with a lot of yeah. it. I think it's important that it's in this movie because I think it's the it's kind of at the heart of what this movie is all about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's what leads to everything in the movie. Yeah, you almost need it if you're going to do a movie about masculinity and it plays into the environmental themes that you're talking about because mm-hmm. they they almost two-pointedly at the beginning of this movie say this land is is we're raping this land. Mm-hmm. We as in the city, the power company is coming in, they're going to dam up the whole river. All of it is going to be gone. All these local people who live there are going to have to move and relocate. And if you consider the fact that these local people are symbolically feeling like they're being raped by the city, it, in a way, not to to condone the action of what they do, but it gives a level of understanding of why they would be lashing out to these people who they deem as like symbols of the city. Exactly, yeah. And so it, it plays into so many layers that I don't think people give this movie credit for outside of the joke that people like to, to do. Because, I mean, how many times... It's endless, the amount of references that you see on TV about this film, and it's all boiled down to, well, that's the Hillbilly Rape movie. Uh, Saturday Night Live did a um, a Deliverance 2 sketch with Burt Reynolds. Wow. I'd never seen this before, but I stumbled upon it on the Internet Archives. This was in 1980, mm-hmm. and the interesting thing about this sketch is that it blends Deliverance with the movie Cruising in a very odd way. I don't like that. Watching it, it makes you realize Saturday Night Live has just always been the most unfunny shit ever. (laughs) Um, Burt Reynolds plays an undercover detective who is sent into the back mountains of Georgia to bust the homosexual hillbilly ring. So they send him in dressed as a leather daddy with two other leather daddies to go lure out the hillbillies. And it's so odd. I don't to like see. that. It's so God, odd to see so this. Tasteless. And it's literally called Deliverance 2. Uh, so they had the, the, even right in 1980, Burt Reynolds is already parodying the movie. Uh, I don't find anything very like clever about parodying right. it. Like it, it's, it's I, I just all don't pretty know how you can joke about it. And I think, oh, I think it, like I was saying, I think it's a matter of like, well, we don't really want to actually deal with this head on. This movie is touchy. <laughs> As a man watching it, I don't want to I don't want to talk or discuss about the idea that I could be humiliated in this way. 
So I'm going to make a joke about it. Well, I do. I do think the movie is also showing you how this spiral. It does spiral out of control because、mm-hmm. not only then do they have to deal with the other guy in the woods, which they may or may not have had to dealt with anyways. Right. But then they have to deal with with Drew with his body、mm-hmm. and disposing of their friends. So by the end of the movie, they essentially have buried three people. Right. One in the ground, two in the water. Yep. And、um, I can't live with that. Exactly. You could argue that like. the The narrative arc of Ed is that he transitions from normal everyday city man and has to become the superhero wilderness man in order to survive. But there's no glory in it. Like he does it because he has to, and he's going to be forever scarred and traumatized and haunted by the fact that he had to do it. And I think there's even a twistedness in. The Burt Reynolds character, I think he's loving it. You know, he's fulfilling his fantasy. It's your turn to play the game. Exactly. Now. <laughs>、yeah. He wants to play the game. He wants it so bad, but he's LARPing. He's not. He does not live there. He's not one of these people. Even the way he talks to the people, he's still talking to them with a sense of superiority. Well, the whole premise is flawed. His his whole premise is flawed because when he gets to the real place、mm-hmm. where he's in an environment where the locals are living. Like how he's fantasizing about, right? They're all like, "What? What the hell? You want to go down that <laughs> river for? Yeah, yeah. They don't want to do it. Yeah. So he's more than a fish out of water. He's he's role playing a, a fantasy of a fantasy、mm-hmm. that's not even. Even、accurate. his his costume is such a、yeah. fantasy. Like, oh yeah, so, yeah. Like, Which、best. I'm calling dibs right here, right now. I'm going to do usually. So back in the day. <laughs> We used to, all three of us used to go ham on、uh-huh. our Halloween costumes. Yes, yes, yes. And those days are long gone. <laughs>、mm-hmm. But if I do Burt Reynolds from Deliverance,、yes. I have from now until October to completely transform my body. Oh yeah, because <laughs> you got to have the guns. I got to have、yeah. the guns. If you're gonna show them off, you got to have the guns. Such、yeah. a snack, and like, oh, he's was, a super he's star. Such a stud. I don't know if we're at this part. We can but- go for it. He when he comes on the screen and it's like the most like manly because like now movie stars are all obviously super like ripped and like but so clearly steroids almost like you're like this isn't a, this isn't even an attainable body yeah, yeah. You're getting ripped in unnatural ways yes exactly whereas this is just like the most like. For me, like fantasy of a man, yeah, it's like just a hunk. Just、That's, his arms are strong because he's like chopping body, wood. That body says, "Get me the fuck out of TV." Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm ready yeah, for、yes. movies. Yeah, this is this yeah. is my moment. Yeah, to be a movie star, and、yeah. I'm gonna、yes. capture it. Yeah, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to keep talking delivery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite. Of what big wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back with Cinema Possessed, and we're talking Deliverance. Uh, right away, the movie's very economical, giving you the exposition. The movie opens with shots of the car driving, shots of the construction vehicles damming up the river, all while voiceover is heard of the guys just talking in the car. Lewis, listen, why are you so anxious about this? Because they're building a dam across the Kahulawasa River. They're going to flood a whole valley, Bobby, that's why. Damn it, they're drowning the river. They're drowning the river, man. All right, drowning. It's, all right. Just about to let... All right. We're talking to you. <laughs> All right. Just about the last wild, untamed, unpolluted, unfucked up river in the South. Don't you understand what I'm saying? We understand what you're saying. stop the river up. There ain't going to be no more river. All it's right. just going to oh, be a big... Watch progress. Clean progress. That's shit. It's a very clean way of making electric power. And those lakes up there provide a lot of people with recreation. I don't give a shit. My father-in-law has a houseboat boat over on, on, on Lake Bowie. Oh, that's a nice place. <laughs> you, you just push a little more power. You push a little more power into Atlanta, a little more air conditioners for your smug little suburb, and you know what's going to happen? We're going to rape this whole goddamn landscape. We're going to rape it. Oh, Lewis, my... That's an extreme point of view, Lewis. It is. An extremist. They're going to flood this whole valley. Do you think that stuff was filmed or do you think they always intended it to be? I don't know. That's a good question. Borman talked about how they were constantly cutting his budget and he had to remove a lot of scenes from the movie. And the book, you know, has a lot of scenes that take place before they go on the trip. Like they go out to like bars and stuff and have these conversations. We're yeah. all have sharing drinks and that's where Lewis explains yeah. like, they're going to bury a river. Uh, we get to meet everybody. John Voight is Ed. He's basically the everyman of the group. Everybody's kind of anchored by John Voight's character. It seems like John Voight and Burt Reynolds go back a long time, and they're probably the closest of the group. Seems like Ronnie Cox's character, Drew, also knows Lewis, but is not quite as close to them. And it seems like Bobby is a total newcomer. Drew is kind of like the artist of the group. He plays the guitar. He's sort of the one. He's very open-minded. But also like cool cool that Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox kind of both came from theater backgrounds. Yeah. Un unknowns, never been in film before. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Cox says he hasn't even been in front of a camera before. Right. And just theater guys, like, mm -hmm. you know, just remind me a lot of our friends and yeah all of them had different dynamics because uh burr reynolds was coming from tv and like like you said this is movie star he's he's a very like go with the gut kind of actor it's all kind of about looking cool sounding cool and then john void is an absolute total method actor which i think was fun for for uh, burt reynolds to kind of like pick on a little bit you know it sounded like yeah, they got along well but that Bert was a little bit like testing the boundaries of and John Void Bert. is coming off a of midnight cowboy mm -hmm. um, I'm on Bert's side method acting I think is yeah uh they could toxic. they they all yeah. decided too that they wanted to do all their own stunts all their own work with no insurance well they could the insurance be, yeah. wouldn't insure the movie because yeah. of that 
That's they're nice. like, if you're going to have the actors doing this, we will not ensure the movie. Yeah, which is where that li- I think that they ad lib that line later when Burt Reynolds. I've never been insured for anything in my life. Yeah, I don't believe in it. There's no risk. I love it. It's a little wink. It's a wink, wink, uh-huh. and it's a great line too. Yeah. And supposedly James Dickey got on all the actors' nerves because he was like always in their ears trying mm-hmm. to sort of mold the characters, talking to them in char- like they were in referring char- to them yeah. as their characters, and they all complained to John Borman, and so John Borman had to go and tell James Dickey like, "Hey, you're not you're not allowed to come to set anymore." <laughs> mm-hmm. And James Dickey was like, "Well, I need to talk to the boys one last time." And he mm-hmm. apparently went up to all of them and said, "It appears that my presence would be most efficacious by its absence." God. And then he turned and walked away, and then Burt Reynolds said, does that mean he's going or he's staying? Yeah. <laughs> I, this is a IMDb trivia always annoys me because I, I don't- You can't trust it. I don't trust it. Mm-hmm. But something that someone said in IMDb that didn't line up with any of the behind the scenes, maybe you caught something, mm-hmm. that James D- Dickey showed up drunk one day and punched John Borman in the face and broke his nose and knocked out four of his teeth. I was what? like, this feels That's a fake. Fun. That's a lie. I think John Borman- yeah. John Borman- has very clear memories of this and talks a lot about it. And you can tell John Borman did not love James yeah. Dickey. I feel like I he, think would he would have, have told that mentioned, story. Yeah. yeah. I was like, God, that's... that's." He no. clearly has respect for the man and talks about how they would go toe-to-toe in arguments. But he never once mentions of a violent outburst from, mm. from Dickey. Yeah. So they stop at this gas station to try to find somebody that they can pay to drive their cars down to Aintree to meet them at the end of the, the river. This is where you get the famous, probably the second most famous scene of this movie, which is the dueling banjo scene. Mm-hmm. Come on, I'm with you. This song was a huge radio hit and won a Grammy for Best Country Music Instrumental of the Year. But this was a, a pre-existing song. Somebody heard it. It was, yeah, it's a pre-existing song that they adapted for the film. Apparently Dickey heard it and convinced Borman to include it. And they had always intended to do this scene and then because of all the budget cuts, uh, Borman was forced to cut his composer. And so in lieu of having a score for this movie, he just got the banjo player to come in and do a bunch of riffs on the dueling banjos theme. He did like really slow versions. He did like atonal versions. And if you watch the movie, anytime a score comes in, it's always doing the melody of dueling banjos just in a like sometimes scary way, sometimes sad way. It's really interesting. And this is, I think, the first moment where the film's sympathy towards these people comes out because this scene is an equalizer yeah i think the whole point of the dueling banjos is to show don't underestimate these people they may look different they may act a little different but look at how fucking talented this kid is this and he can he can beat you yeah and yeah. ronnie cox to his yeah, credit like, i'm lost yeah to his credit he's the only one of the group that actually opens up and yeah. is willing to sort of meet them on the yeah. level. Burt Reynolds is being kind of mean. Burt Reynolds is so mean. Yeah. He's so like toxic masculinity. Exactly. And, and Bobby. Be. Bobby's being mean. Bobby's too. being outright yeah. rude. Bobby's a clown. Yeah. Bobby has no respect for these people. I think Burt Reynolds. Even though Bobby has fucked up teeth too. Yeah. Exactly. This scene is our first link because every every podcast we try to link back to the last movie we did and find a connection after the fact. Mm-hmm. This is our first connection to Labyrinth. Do you know what it is? Oh, yes. 
the way they pull off the banjo trick. Mm -hmm. It's the same way. It's the same way that they get David Bowie to look like he's spinning those balls. They have Mm -hmm. this kid that they casted does not know how to play the. I was so bummed when I was like, because I was like, Jack, this kid's amazing. And you said the The way they do it is they have this kid sitting there holding a banjo, but his left hand and arm is the arm of another person who's crouched behind him. Another kid. Another kid who is a savant at playing a banjo. And he's doing all the pickings. Yeah. And it looks amazing. Why didn't yeah. they just give? Well, he and probably they, didn't look good. Borman said in the commentary that they actually, they didn't credit that kid, the the, the real banjo player, because they didn't want to give away the, the, the secret. Yeah. So they didn't credit him in the movie, which is very similar to what happened in The Exorcist, too. They didn't want to give away that Linda Blair's demon voice was being done by another actor. So they didn't credit that actor. And, and um, that's bullshit. William Freakin got bullshit. sued for it because they wanted everybody to think that Linda Blair was giving the performance. They wanted yeah. them to think that this kid on screen was giving the real performance. Yeah. What was it about the 70s that they felt like they needed to like play into all that mystique? I don't, I don't know. know. This movie also, I feel like, ties back in this scene so perfectly to the, our first movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Cause the whole time I was like, this is why you don't stop and talk to people at scary gas stations in small Southern towns. Well, I think the real You're message- You're about to get haunted by them. The real message is listen to those people. You know, That's don't talk true. down to them. They are warned in Texas Chainsaw. Don't exactly. go up to that yeah. If they had listened, yeah. they wouldn't be in the trouble. And they are right. warned in this, like, don't float the- Everyone this- is like, don't go down to the river. What, like, you're exactly. crazy. Why do you want to go to Andrew? Yeah. Uh, Dueling Banjos is a fucking bop. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's incredible. Speaking of bops, real quick, your opening, was that you doing a cover or did you just take the Enya music and- That was a karaoke version okay. of the end. It was too fuck. I'm not too saying good. that you can't yeah. do that, but it was real impressive. <laughs> I, know. I know. Real impressive. <laughs> I didn't- I, Did you try to do your own cover? The whole week I was trying to think of a Dueling Banjos thing. Mm-hmm. And not only did I could I not come up with anything, but I was like, that's so expected. And so then literally yesterday, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was like, what is an unexpected choice? And for whatever reason, sail away just felt right to me as like, they're sailing, they're floating. You know, it felt, it came, it came naturally, but I didn't have time to like make the music. So I went and found a karaoke version of it. I like when you make the music because it adds that like off layer Mm -hmm. to it that just takes it over the top. Yeah. Well, I'll try to be... No, no. I'll try to be better. No, I respect your time. I respect your time. Oh, here's a question for you. Hmm. Do you think that Deliverance is the opening scene or the climax of This Is Why My Back Hurts DVD? Oh. The opening. You think he opens with this in the montage? Yeah. Probably. The shot of him flipping Flipping. over the- They said he injured his back. Yeah. And he looks incredible. This is how you open. He broke his coccyx bone. (laughs) they They don't clarify if this- Injury that he has sustained on this movie is the reason for his. Maybe he already had a pre-existing injury that mm-hmm. he re-injured, but it's definitely got to be included in the montage of Why My Back Hurts DVD. Which listeners, if anybody happens to stumble across one of an authentic copy of Why My Back Hurts by Burt Reynolds, we will pay a lot of money for it. We will pay a lot of money for it. Also, too, this is where we get the look and feel of the world of the rest of the movie, the mm-hmm. muted colors, the brown and green color palette. Yep. It's really striking to me. Like the cinematography looks, I think, looks awesome. Yeah, this was shot by Vilmos Zygmunt. Borman said that he wanted the the land to be sort of intimidating and scary, but 
when they shot it, especially with these nice cameras and nice film stock, it just looked beautiful no matter what way you did it. So he decided mm. to de- desaturate, desaturate it yeah. to try to just make it a little less beautiful. Yeah. But hey, what can we say? I the think South this was is like a, beautiful a Panavision place. camera, Panavision C-series, anamorphic lenses. Yep. Stunning. And then it said, blow, said blown up to 70 mil, possibly. Hmm. That would be fun. But shot see. on 35, yeah. blown up to 70. So they end up finding these two brothers who they paid to, to drive their cars down. They haul hop into their cars and the brothers hop into this like Mad Max looking car that they have. But then did you notice that the, uh, quickly a third guy mm-hmm. jumps into the car with a shotgun? Mm-hmm. But the film very specifically never shows his face because they already want to start the mystery yeah. of are they going to get the right guy? Yeah. So they drive down to the thing. Of course, Lewis drives like a madman and gets- he's, This scene gets me so frustrated how badly he- he's how driving insane ba- he's driving. He's driving like an insane man and he makes multiple wrong turns. We done fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't quite know where he's going, which is sort of his like motto because he says later on, he says, um, sometimes you have to get lost to find anything. Oh, did you also notice that um, Lewis had a Confederate flag on his license plate? I did. Yeah. The whole time I was thinking he would be a Trumper. Like yeah. into if Deliverance was now, it would be like, you know. He has like right wing gun nut vibes too. Yeah. For sure. It's not even I guess it's not even quite Trumper. It's like um don't it's like conspiracy theorists like don't believe the government is out, you know, I don't know. Which yeah. is true. Which I mean is. that I know that mm. is true, but he's <laughs> He's the scary side of it. Yeah. So they get there, they get on the canoes and they float away. And there's another shot of the two brothers standing in the bushes watching them go. And again, that third guy is there, but his face is conveniently covered by bushes. So you can't see it. The canoe scene is fun. You get a little bit of the dynamic of the group. Lewis calls Bobby Chubby to his face. He's like, get on over there in that canoe, Chubby. So you already get the dynamic that Bobby is like the weak link of the group, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. Lewis talks shit about him to Ed behind his back. He's like, why did you bring the chubby boy? This is why I don't like groups. I don't. Groups are bad. I don't like groups. I never (laughs) have. I don't like, especially like big groups of dudes. I Mm -hmm. I just don't feel comfortable. Yeah, big groups of dudes are scary. Yeah. I feel like there's always that dynamic with bachelor parties. Bachelor parties where like, there's bound to be people who have never met each other before. And ba- We've been to bachelor parties before with yeah. uh, lots of dudes. The decisions, you gotta feel the dynamic out. Decisions get made that you can't, po- no yeah. one can possibly <laughs> consent right. like to everything, you know? <laughs> so gr- jury, like whatever the expression, uh, uh, jury by committee or whatever, yeah, it's right. like, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm too opinionated. I believe in what I want to do self yeah. selfishly for better or worse. <laughs> I don't like feeling like, oh, you know, there was a vote and now yeah. I have to indulge strippers for my night in the <laughs> desert. You know? This And I think this movie nails that dynamic pretty yeah. well because you feel bad for Bobby. There's a scene where Ed and Lewis are alone. You see Lewis being cool and catching fish with a bow and arrow. And this is a scene where he kind of gives his whole motto of like, machines are going to fail. Machines are going to fail. And the system's gonna fail. Then? And then what? Then survival. Who has the ability to survive? That's the game. Survival. And you can't wait for it to happen, can you? You can't wait for it. Well, the system's done all right by me. Oh, yeah. You got a nice job. Got a nice house. Nice wife. Nice kid. You make that sound. 
Rather shitty, Lewis. Why do you go on these trips with me, Ed? I like my life, Lewis. Did it feel like, because again, I just finished reading the book, yep. where we have tons of time. It's not a movie. We have tons of time to get into conversations, to get into characters' heads, to build these kinds of conversations. Yep. I felt like that conversation came a little bit more naturally in the book. Did sure. you feel like it was a little random that he's just out of nowhere? He's just talking. Well, we come in the middle of the soapbox, scene. Yeah. You know? We come into the middle of the scene a little bit. I would have liked that to have been prompted a little bit yeah. more. But. It's painting the differences between the men. But you can see John Voight. He's looking at Lewis with like he's a god, you know. He's mm-hmm. he's kind of buying into it a little bit too. They camp for the night, they get drunk. I think it's interesting in this camping scene that Bobby has multiple sexual jokes mm-hmm. in this scene. First he talks about how he's going to go be mean to my mattress. He calls it the inflatable broad. He also talks about how he had his first wet dream in a sleeping bag. He's like making all these sort of raunchy sexual jokes. And it's mm-hmm. kind of ironic that he's the one who ends up getting sexualized in the film. They hear something. Lewis goes and investigates it. And this is another moment where they all kind of gather together and they're like, what is he doing? And Ed says, uh, we can trust Lewis. He knows what he's doing. And Ronnie Cox's character says, I don't think he does. Ronnie Cox is all suspicious of Lewis. But maybe he does, though, because he, first of all, that scene is cool because he shows up in the foreground of the yes. shot. He, like, disappears, and it's just like a wolf. He's he's so sneaky. But he says he thought he heard something. And mm-hmm. he may, did. He may have. Uh, maybe he, he did, maybe he didn't. Yeah. Speaking of, the like, the that shot you were talking about, this movie has a lot of good blocking in it. I think the the Jaws and Spielberg get a lot of talk about how good the, I think this movie rivals Jaws in how well it uses one take master shots with just characters reblocking and the camera reframing to tell long swaths of story with multiple characters because there's always like four faces in all of these shots, which is why the anamorphic works so well because it can fit them all. But the way he just will let scenes go, but it never, it don't, you don't feel like it's dragging because he's constantly having the characters move around and reblock themselves and reveal information. And it really comes into play when they get confronted by the mountain men. There's mm-hmm. a really good long extended take in that. The next morning, Ed wakes up. He wants to go bow hunting. Like Justin said, he tries to wake up Lewis. Lewis is like curled up in the he's fetal like, position. Ooh. And uh, John Voight sort of makes a face like, hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a disconcerting, like, damn. who hasn't done that, though? I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm a Burt Reynolds guy, but I wake up screaming all the time. Did, when was, does Jack still talk in his sleep? He, and he make actually weird... hasn't as much, but he used to talk and wake up screaming mm-hmm. lots. Yep. <laughs> okay, this this I still wake though? up nervous and scared. <laughs> of what? You therapy, sir. Um, the, of what? I see the figures in the corner of the room. The see, mm-hmm. I can't hear that. I can't hear that. That's going to haunt me. Anyways, this scene made me really want to go camping because it made, like, when you wake up early, when you've been camping and it's so beautiful and crisp out and you make a little coffee over the fire. Oh, yeah, making that coffee uh, over the fire. It made me so nostalgic for camping. That's the only thing he did wrong is he didn't make a cup of coffee right when he woke up. No, he went to go try and be a man. Yeah, so he goes out with his bow and he sees this deer and he draws his arrow on it, but he gets buck fever. 
which is what they call it when he basically physically, he, he loses his motor functions. He starts to shake and he can't fire the arrow. He, he's confronted with the idea of having to kill this animal and it overwhelms him. Well, I was going to be pissed if he shot that animal. That would be insane to shoot a deer while you're out just floating because you're not taking that deer anywhere to go eat it. You're literally just killing it to kill it's it. It's quite possible they would have. Where are they going to put that on the canoe? Well, they would have maybe shacked up a little longer and eaten there. Yeah, I don't know. No, they're not going to eat an entire deer that feeds a family for a winter. In sports, this condition is called the yips. Have you ever heard that? No. Same sentence, like it's just a sudden loss of function. Have you ever had the yips? Do you have the yips when you do anything or or buck fever? I don't think so. Where you freeze up and- Sometimes when I'm um, working out with my trainer, Aaron, and I have to jump on a high box, Mm -hmm. sometimes I get the yips in that and I like trip myself out. I do in my dreams. And whenever there's like a physical confrontation with somebody in my dreams and I have to throw- A punch. A punch. It's It's very hard to make my hand move. I'd have the same problem. I have bashful bladder where I can't like pee next to somebody in a urinal. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I get the yips. It's all psychological. Oh yeah, it's it's yeah. it's a brain thing. I also get it when I um, eat mom's spaghetti right before a big rap battle. Okay, mm. I choke. Mm-hmm. Common. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> happens to everybody. Uh, so they hit the water again, uh, but this time Bobby goes with Ed. They end up needing uh, Ed and Bobby pull over to wait for them, and this is when the big infamous scene happens. They get confronted by two mountain men. How goes it? One is played by Bill McKinney. This is the main one, who is so fucking good in this movie. What the hell you think you're doing? Heading down river. Little canoe trip. Heading for Aintree. Aintree? Sure. This river only runs one way, Captain. Haven't you heard? You ain't never gonna get down to Aintree. Well, why not? Because this river don't go to Antry. You done taking the wrong turn. This scene is really scary because they're immediately confrontational. But in this way in which, like, Ed and Bobby, like, can't win the conversation. And he's, like, touching them Mm -hmm. and poking them and pushing them. We've got uh, quite a long journey ahead of us, gentlemen. Well, just And the other man, the toothless man, is literally named Cowboy Coward. This is is his actual name. Gentlemen, we can talk this thing over. What is it you you require of us? Well, we uh, require that you get your goddamn ass up in them woods. All right, now, look. The first five minutes of the scene is all one take. It's just a series of re-blocking all these actors and the cameras just panning it's all kind of stationary one shot they end up tying ed to a tree john voight's character with his own belt they tie it around his neck to a tree they make bobby ned Beatty strip down first bill mckinney chases him around Mm -hmm. like a kid Mm -hmm. that's the other disturbing aspect about this whole scene is it's very childlike in the way that bill mckinney terrorizes him it's like a childlike bully yeah because a bully would totally go twist your ear, make you squeal like a pig. Tarantino talks about in his book, Cinema Speculation, he saw this movie for the first time when he was very young. I think he said he was like seven or eight years old. He saw it in the theaters. 
And he, he says that he didn't know what was technically happening. You know, none of that conceptually made really any sense to in his mind. But what he did know was that he was being humiliated. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I could, as a little boy, I could connect to the fact that he was being bullied and humiliated. And that's all he needed to know to understand the scene completely, which I think is a testament to the scene itself. I mean, for people who haven't seen this film, which I do think there's a lot of people out there that haven't, the scene is harrowing. And it's very hard to watch, but it's probably not as graphic as you think it is. It's not outright shown, but it is heavily implied and very clear that Bill McKinney sodomizes Ned Beatty. It feels very scary and very horrifying. And the way it's also like kind of slow. Yeah. Like nothing is like fast about it. And that is so sad, too, because there's just they know there's absolutely nothing that can be done. It's a drawn out dread. We're talking about how good Bill McKinney is, but Ned Beatty is. He's the star. So heartbreaking. Yeah. Because he just keeps saying no. Even before they've touched him, he's just going, no, 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 because he knows. Yeah. And he looks like a little boy. He reminded me of the little boy in Goonies. Like, that's like all I could think about. You also keep cutting back to John Voight, who is completely powerless. Knowing um, that it might come for him next. It's definitely going to come yeah. to him next. And yeah, we've all heard Squeal Like a Pig. This is, this It's been parodied and referenced in a million things, which is crazy. It's crazy that one of the most brutal rape scenes in cinema is used as humor fodder so much. I don't think it's done so much as anymore, but boy, it's been done millions of times in our, yeah, we learned. In our pop culture. We hopefully learned. Also, to just speaking of Ned Beatty as an actor, like his transformation after that is such a stark contrast. Mm-hmm. Whatever I can't imagine, whatever he had to do to get himself there. Yeah, but it is really uh, feels like a, a believable performance. Mm-hmm. Like it's a night and day switch, whole different character. Yeah, really compelling to watch. And he talked about how you know he's still. Well, he he passed away, but that he, for the rest of his life, had to deal with people, mostly men, coming up to him on the street going, squeal like a pig. And he was like, it was never not disturbing. Even though I know that a lot of times it came from a place of appreciation, he's like- And then being, that's like the only way they can be like, I saw the movie- but as as somebody who had to actually put himself through the experience of it he was like it always sort of resurfaced a feeling of trauma every time burt reynolds said it um in an interview too that he felt like women got this movie immediately male audiences wanted to turn it into a joke this was the first time a, a big mainstream movie had really confronted male on male rape so in a lot of ways, it was the first time that men were being confronted with the idea that they hmm. could be, you know what I mean? Like they could be put in that position. Didn't want to didn't want to deal with it, but that women immediately understood this movie because they've had to deal with that fear all their lives. Yeah. I think that this scene too also was a big reason John Voight was considering not doing the movie, not taking the part. I'm glad he eventually came around and did it. It's a very radical scene, especially at the time. Yeah, everyone who, I mean, I feel like it, it's done, like you said, it's done in such a tasteful, not... Uh, tasteful is the wrong word, but yeah. the wrong word, but it, it's done it's with... It's done with respect and respect power. Respect and meaning. Yeah, it's, it's done loaded. with meaning, I yeah. think is why... It earns it. And all the, I think all the actors who were involved in the filmmakers were, were brave for tackling this. And while it's happening, Ed sees Lewis and Drew 
floating up. And this is when the scene starts to become exciting because you realize that there's going to be some sort of deliverance. There's going to be some salvation for Yeah, I mean, I was very ready for Burt Reynolds to come in and fucking murder. And when you do finally see Burt Reynolds crouched in the bushes with his arrow drawn right before they're about to go to John Voight next, Burt Reynolds fires his arrow and, and sticks it straight through Bill McKinney's chest and they watch him very slowly and very painfully die. And it's pretty disturbing. Like they, they all just kind of stand there and watch him as he gasps and heaves and rolls around on the ground with this arrow stuck through him. And apparently the, the studio wanted John Borman to cut this down. They thought it was too horrific. And Borman was adamant that like, I'm not just going to show violence in a way that's satisfying. I want to show the horror and brutality of it. And it's important that these men see this moment. And it's important that the audience sees this moment, that there is no glory in this. It's really disturbing. And the way he falls on the tree too is like creepy. The Unnatural. The way his face lands on the branch and is just kind of like- Yeah. The way this whole movie deals with dead bodies is really disturbing because later on with with Drew, his dead body is quite disturbing too. It's 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 always sort of juxtaposing man with nature in a way that like makes you remember how fragile we are. Yeah. And yeah, the way he's hanging on this tree with his face smushed into it is really unnerving and did some good-ass dead body acting by Bill McKinney too because he sits there again, un long unbroken takes where you're seeing him holding his breath against this tree. Yeah, and his eyes rolled up into the back of his yeah. head. When they carry him, right before they bury mm -hmm. him, his eyes are open the whole time. Yeah, he has absolute control of his body. And there's a there's a really creepy moment where Burt Reynolds walks up to his body and is looking at his body slumped over the tree and Burt, a little smile creeps across Burt Reynolds' face. It's like, this is what I've always wanted. This is the fantasy. So they, they start talking about it, what they're going to do. Like I said, immediately the dread of now what comes in. And it's very clear to Bobby what he wants to do. And it's very clear to Lewis what he wants to do. But it's also very clear to Drew that Drew does not want to do it. And you listen, Lewis, I don't know what you've got in mind, but if you try to conceal this body, you're setting yourself up for a murder charge. Now that much law I do know. This ain't one of your fucking games. You killed somebody. There he is. I see him, Drew. That's right, I killed somebody. You're wrong if you don't see this as a game. Lewis. Are you listening, Ed? Damn it, we can get out of this thing without any questions asked. We get connected up with that body and the law. This thing's going to be hanging over us the rest of our lives. We got to get rid of that guy. Just how are you going to do that, Lewis? Where? Anywhere. Everywhere. Nowhere. As Burt Reynolds ends up pointing out is like, we will not probably not get away unscathed with this because this town will turn on us because it's quite possible this man is related to people who are going to be on the jury. And we shot him in the back. Mm -hmm. And Drew says, it's about the law. What law? Where's the law, Drew? You believe in democracy? Let's put it to a vote. Drew votes that he wants to go to the authorities. Bobby votes they want to bury it. Lewis votes that he wants to bury it. It comes down to Ed. And Drew goes to Ed and he says, two lines in here that reflect back to Spike Lee. Hmm. Ed, 
this may be the most important decision of your life, which is a line that gets repeated multiple times in He Got Game. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. right after that, he says, we have to do the right thing here, Ed. <laughs> and I'm thinking Spike Lee's got to be a big old Deliverance fan. And don't forget, Ned Beatty mm-hmm. is in He Got Game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think Spike loves Deliverance. <laughs> That's some cinema speculation for you right there. I think in hindsight, what they did is not worth this, the risk. Is not worth it. Like they could, they could have potentially made the problem um, much worse. I don't know. I just, I just find one, I'm a bad liar. Two, mm. uh, I'm haunted by things easily and have a hard time forgetting them. So I don't want to live with right with it. Like I do agree with Lewis that like they probably will not get caught. And that, like, there is no morality. There's just the morality of nature in, like, your own mind. Yeah. So you can, you did what you had to do. You can justify that. But then if you spiral out of control and start burying and killing yep. and burying, it's like, well, now you're just racking up a lot of yeah. karma that's going to be hard to reconcile. This is, a, this is for sure a quandary, a quagmire that I would not want to be in. But I can, I fully believe I would be siding with Drew. The fact that his family might be on the on the jury and that we would get Senate, that's speculation. Yeah. But I would know for a fact that if we buried the body and I had to live with this for a lie, I would know Jack for a fact. Jack and I have also gotten into legitimate fights before when I've like, you know, just been sitting on the couch being like, well, would you help me bury a body? Like, you know, those stupid scenarios where obviously you're just supposed to be like, yes, of course I wouldn't but turn I you no. in. Jack's always like, no, I would turn you in. No, I don't say I'm yes, going to turn you, you in. you did. All I say is I probably wouldn't help you bury the body. But you also, and and wouldn't help me like Which is a betrayal lie. to you, Yes, that's I a understand. total betrayal. That's awful. Help me bury the I body. I maybe take those, those little hypotheticals too literally. What I don't understand is why is there not a middle ground? Why <laughs> Lewis is the one who shot the man. Lewis is the one who committed the crime. Why can't he bury the body because he wants to? And everybody else just mind your own fucking business. That doesn't work that way. You're complicit. You're, you're not complicit. You had nothing to do with it. You're but an accessory. You're an Drew, accessory. Drew is not an accessory. No, there there is a term for people who know something is happening and do nothing. I about think you it. are an accessory because Drew is standing right there. Yeah. Yeah, but if your alternative is to assist in burying the body, okay, doing so, something you don't want to do. Why not then don't bury the body? But then what do you do when the cops are like, do you know where the body, do you know what happened? Where's the body? No clue. But you, that's a lie. I wasn't now there. Now you're lying. I wasn't but there. But you were there. I don't know. But you were there. Don't you're know. lying. You're <laughs> I an don't accessory. Know. It's easier to say, I don't know, than to say, um, we were here, officer, and then this happened. And I don't think you've solved the problem. I I've think you've still it. got a big problem on your hands. <laughs> I've cracked you the case. Um, so they end up deciding to bury the body. Drew is not happy about it. And you can see throughout the rest of these scenes that Drew is basically cracking. He's slowly snapping they carry the body almost like a cross it's almost religious in what they do visually it's just great filmmaking they bury him in a very shallow grave it does not look like they dug deep enough they make their way back to the river but drew won't put on his life jacket they repeatedly ask him to put on his life jacket and he won't so frustrating i don't think drew can take what they've all decided to do and i think he would rather in some way he would rather self-destruct and they hit the rapids and it's pretty rough out there. And they keep saying, Drew, what's going on? Why are you acting weird? And he does this very interesting, very spooky thing where he kind of like 
looks around and he shakes his head a little bit and then he just kind of pumps out of the boat. The wooden canoe gets completely busted in half. I will have to say, as, a, as from the filmmaking standpoint, there isn't one single shot where it does not look like these actors doing all this stuff. And according to John Borman, there was only one shot where they actually did use a stuntman, and it was for John Voight's moment where he gets thrown out of the boat. That was the one and only stuntman they used. Mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds gets a great shot where he goes flying out of the boat, and you can very clearly see it's Burt Reynolds, and it looks fucking awesome. And I had a long time ago seen the story of that where they tried it once with a dummy in the boat, and Burt Reynolds said, oh, we can't do that. It looks like a dummy going over a waterfall. Let me do it. So then he did the, sh- the shot that you see in the movie and he climbed out of the water and he went up to John Borman and he said, how did it look? And John Borman said, looked like a dummy going over a waterfall. <laughs> so Burt Reynolds pulls himself out of the water and his leg has, his bone has basically snapped through his leg and meat. Oh, it's so horrifying. A looking. lamb's leg of meat is hanging out, which you have to include in your Halloween costume when you oh, do this. Oh, of course. Actual lamb mm-hmm. meat. Bloody yeah. meat. Who are other, are there any other good, um, Vests in in uh, movie characters. Yeah, Burt Reynolds. What about the, the Marty McFly, the Australian guy? Doesn't he wear one with the hat? Ernest? No. Well, Ernest is, is an iconic vest. No, isn't there like an Australian Steve Irwin? Oh my God, no. Oh, Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, that's a that's an iconic movie vest. As they sort of gather, they can't find Drew, and the whole time Lewis is going, "He was shot." Drew was shot. And they all pretty much buy into that story. They're like, okay, he probably was shot. Like, he's, he's probably right. But they didn't hear it. They didn't see it. And we as the audience didn't see it either. Yeah. And personally, I don't believe he was shot. What do you think? I think, I think he hint- was. I think it's hinting that he's not because I can't find the, the shot wound. Yeah, they, they do. When they find the body, they look at his head and they speculate. They that, say that, that could be, they say it but could the way be. that they say it made me think like mm-hmm. It doesn't look trying. exactly. It's basically just a big cut that may or may not be a gunshot. But either way, at the end of the movie, I, I think there's no doubt that someone is hunting them. Oh, True, but it doesn't, absolutely. But yeah, I don't, absolutely. I, I had no doubt about that, but I think, I don't think Drew was shot. I think Drew tumped himself out of the boat out of. So you think he killed himself? Wow. Mm. I, I, th- I think I he think snapped. That. You agree that the movie is tr- being purposefully ambiguous and trying to give you one or the other situation. Yeah, I would say maybe John Borman is trying to lean into that a little bit more. The but book does it too. Yeah, but... The book never makes it clear. John Voight suspects it. Lewis inspects the wound and says, yes, that's a gunshot, you know? In the book or in the movie? In the book. Okay, yeah. it doesn't happen in the movie. Yeah. But uh, but Lewis is going to say anything to 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 play into his story. Maybe it's irrelevant for well, their own survival. It's not irrelevant to the themes of the film. That's mm-hmm. the reason why I like the version where the doing this drives him mad to the point of self destruction, as opposed to being hunted. Because I think it further deconstructs. Why do you think he shakes his head? It's not a shaking head of somebody who's been shot in the head. Well, if he was grazed, it's implying that he was grazed by a bullet. Maybe. You could also interpret it as like, you know, rabid. Because he does all sorts of weird things. He's like looking, he's like making little motions and stuff. But hey, I don't fault you for it. I think a lot of people think he was shot. I'm just on the side of no shot. Yeah, sure. Personally. What do you think Inya thinks? Who can say, right? Do you think that's what Burt Reynolds 
has over the montage of Why My Back Hurts. Ooh, that would be great. That would be honestly <laughs> incredible. I wonder what year he made it. Dukes of Hazard was the movie that that Jay Chandrasekhar mm-hmm. talks about mm-hmm. in his book. That was 2006, 2005 or so. So that was when he was doing it. So that very well could have included uh, Only Time. My specific memory of, of Inya's Only Time was cutting a PowerPoint presentation to it of of a 9-11 remembrance. You cut that. that? Well, the whole class did. We all kind of contributed it's to honestly it. honestly shocking. I was in a great class called East Lab where we learned how to use PowerPoint, uh, Adobe Flash, Photoshop. We learned all sorts of things in that. And yeah, we put together a 9-11 tribute. This must have been the year 2002. And they 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 screened it at the assembly, like the end of the year assembly, like our graduation. And the song that we used was "India's Only Time." And the looking back on it, we used way too many pictures of people jumping out of the Literally. buildings. Literally, it was a little bit distasteful how many pictures. I we think used everybody did. I mean, every nine eleven video at that the the year after mm-hmm. was. I mean. I just remember being in the auditorium when they screened it and hearing the school gasp mm-hmm. at those pictures and being like, maybe we took it too far. <laughs> <laughs> but this Inya song is banging. Yeah. At so, least you didn't put Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. That's oh true. Oh, my God. That song was banned from MTV after 9-11 beca- just because they, they thought it was distasteful to play it. Yeah. Probably a good move. Lewis <laughs> that other guy, that toothless bastard. Shot him! He's right up there! He's gonna try and kill us too! Ed! Lewis! Ed! What are we gonna do, Lewis? You're the guy with the answer! What the hell do we do now? <laughs> now you get to play the game. They realize he's gonna have to climb this hill mm-hmm. because John Voigt was such a method actor. He really did climb the hill. They had a harness on him, but there was no stunt man. He he decided he wanted to climb that mountain. He becomes he's looking like snack daddy in this scene. Yeah, I you become say. attracted to the I did. I was like, ooh. Once Burt Reynolds Lewis is out of the game, the role of the survivalist transfers to Ed. And there's even a moment where where Lewis grabs Ed and he says, Now you get to play the game. Which is twisted. Lewis is twisted in the head, man. I love, love the guy. Love him. I love the guy, but he's <laughs> twisted in the head. Um, so we get to see him climb the cliff. This is where day turns to night, and they do a process called day for night. And for anybody listening that doesn't know, that's simply when you're shooting something in the day, but you have to do camera tricks to make it look like it's at night. And a lot of ways you do this is you underexpose it. You try not to film the sky. You try to control the shadows well, and the harsh sunlight. They didn't try not to film the yeah, sky. Yeah, they couldn't. Once he reaches the top of this, they see the sky. And Borman talked about how he did it. And it's very similar to the way Jordan Peele and Hoyt Van Hoytema did it for Nope, where they actually shot it. They took the film and they inverted it. They used the negative so that the whites were black and the blacks were white. And they used that to sort of start as a base of a composite so that the sky would naturally be black. And then they just went through and like rotored around it, which is why in certain shots you can see this sort of like fuzz line. It looked good in Nope. They did a similar process with infrared in Nope. It looks terrible in this movie, unfortunately. Looks awful. It's the, I mean, it's the it only point in which the, it looks like garbage. Yeah, the movie just completely and utterly crumbles at this point. <laughs> oh, that's taking it too far. It, but there's no dialogue. The suspense so is still there. Everything that you're looking at is just mush. You get distracted by how bad yeah. it looks. It's a failure. It's a failure of that <laughs> sequence. Yeah. Because why not make the choice 
to have it just continue to be daytime. Daytime. Yeah. Well, and he a, needs to fall asleep, yeah. wake up again. So he falls asleep, he wakes up, and of course, there's a man with a shotgun behind him way off in the distance. We can't quite see him. He pulls his bow out, he draws it back, and he gets buck fever. Release. Real shaky. Shakes his ass off and then, boom, fires it. Looks like he totally fucks up. He falls backwards, gets stabbed with one of his own arrows. This was a pretty cringy scene for Corey. She was definitely like reacting. Ugh, yeah. She was like, she stabbed himself? But I love this scene. I love this moment. So he's now stuck there with an arrow in his side. And this guy is walking closer to him with the double barrel shotgun. And as he approaches, he pulls the shotgun up and slowly kind of leans forward, fires the gun, it hits the rocks, and as he leans forward, we see that he actually did get him. He stuck him right in the neck. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really cool reveal. Yeah, I remember seeing this for the first time and being like really taken by that, by that little trick. Ed goes up to him, has a little mini freak out for a second because he sees that he has teeth. But then... He reaches down and touches his teeth and he realizes he's got like dentures. So do you think the movie's also trying to tell you that they maybe got the wrong guy? Well, I think it's trying to be ambiguous about it because they still don't. They He he brings him back down and Bobby looks at him and goes, do you think that's the right guy? And he's like, oh, I don't fucking know, Bobby. Why don't you look at him? He's like, well, maybe they don't know. Yeah. Like either fucking way. I think it is the right guy because yeah. it's it's Cowboy Coward. They talk about it in the in the commentary that Cowboy Coward loved to buy a 24 pack of beer, fill his bathtub up with <laughs> ice, stick all the beer in it and just sit by the bathtub and just go beer after beer after beer. And that he would show up to set drunk very professional man. They showed him what they, they were like, we think this is going to work better if we can actually lower you down this mountain on a rope because it doesn't look great with the dummy. Can you see? And they showed him, they lowered a dummy down on the rope. And apparently when he looked at it, he goes, well, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> also, when they had him uh, audition for the part, John Bourne was like, you got the part. And then he's like, wait, before you go in this movie, you're going to be raping a man. And he says, oh, well, that's okay. I've done worse things in my life. Jesus. That's what he said? That's what he said. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure he's joking. When your name's Cowboy Coward, yeah. you've lived a life. You've lived. And he really did not have teeth. And apparently um, it was Burt Reynolds who knew Cowboy Coward. They were on the hunt for a real toothless man. And Burt Reynolds is like, I worked with a guy one time. Mm -hmm. Gave up. Also, that, like, that, whatever that job was that he worked with him on he said that he hundreds of times jumped off a high thing onto his back like for <laughs> yeah. it was like a cowboy did show or stunt, something yeah. yeah did this stunt where he would jump off a tower and land on his back yeah. day after day <laughs> that's why his back hurts folks gotta see that dvd so d is he lowering the body on the rope because he doesn't want it to splatter on the floor is that the concept well one i think he wants bobby to see him Mm -hmm. He wants Bobby's reassurance, which I think is frustrating for him that Bobby's also questioning whether it's the guy. Yeah. But I think they also need to be strategic about how they get rid of this body. Yeah. I don't know. I just would have tossed it off. And... Yeah. You do kind of think like may, may as well, but yeah. maybe I think he needs Bobby to prove mm -hmm. to help him. Yeah. Because he's not quite sure. They get the body down. They sink it with some rocks. They start heading back. They run into Drew's body, which is very disturbing looking. He's doing this thing where he's 
wrapped his arm over his shoulder, almost uh. like dislocated his shoulder looking. This was another thing that my, my dad and my uncles would do. They would just sit in that position as a reference to this movie. And apparently that was just Ronnie Cox could do it. There was no prosthetics yeah. or anything. He just could do that with his shoulder. They realize that he has this cut on his head and they say that it could be a gunshot wound, but they don't know. But they said if it is a gunshot wound, that's going to blow our story. Right. So we have to now bury Drew's body too. And Bobby has a great line where he goes like, it never ends. So now they have to bury Drew. Ed gives him a little eulogy and he says, you were the best of us. It's pretty sad. Very. They end up making it back. They all decide we're going to lie about what happened. We're going to say we crashed here so that they don't investigate upstream. Mm -hmm. They'll just look downstream mm -hmm. and we'll say we lost Drew. We won't say anything about the mountain men. And uh, James Dickey is the sheriff of this town of Aintree. He's great. He's really good. And apparently when he fired, when John Borman said, you can't come to set anymore, he did say, you can come back to play your part when we shoot that part. And James Dickey initially was like, find yourself another boy. But then when push came to shove and it came time, he was like, ah, I'll come back and play the part. <laughs> he had to be a part of it. There's a great dinner table scene that happens here. So they get taken in by a real mountain family. And you see this total reversal from Bobby. Bobby is now like humbled by these people. They're feeding him, they're treating him, and now he's actually interacting with them as human beings in a way that he wasn't before this experience. And John Voigt weeps at the table. <laughs> and then Ed Beatty breaks attention by saying, It's corner special, isn't it? There's an interesting scene too where they're in a car and they're driving to the hospital and they get stopped by uh, a church that's in the road that's being evacuated from the town. Pretty interesting visual metaphor there too. It's very much like, one, you're going to have to repent for the sins of what you've done. But two, it kind of reflects the, uh, the, the mobility. If a church can move, then like their, their morals can, can move too. They've had to move their morals around a little bit to get through this situation. Mm -hmm. And it's also a reminder of the sadness of this town. All these people are going to have to fucking leave and they're literally having to tow churches away because they're going to damn this place up. Yeah. The police end up discovering boat wreckage upstream and they start suspecting that they're not getting the whole truth. And there's a deputy that's like really honing in on like, I think these boys are lying, Sheriff. There's a good scene where they go tell Burt Reynolds, hey, we're going to have to change our story. And Burt Reynolds has this good moment where he kind of winks at him and says like, you know the strangest thing? I don't remember nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Well, he's been pretending to be asleep yeah, too. It's good. The final scene before they head back home, the sheriff corners Ed and Bobby and says, Before you go, buddy, let me ask you something. How come y'all end up with four life jackets? Didn't we have an extra one? No. Drew wasn't wearing his. Well, how come he... He wasn't wearing it. I don't know. I think this is a really poignant moment because he's taking the one opportunity they have to actually tell the truth. Yeah. And the truth is, is that he doesn't fucking know. It's the God's honest truth. He doesn't understand. So then he goes back to his suburban life. He hugs his wife and child and we get a scene where we see the river and this bloated waterlogged hand comes floating to the surface and John Voigt wakes up 
And we realize he's just dreaming it, but he's going to be forever haunted by this idea that one day these bodies could surface and it could all come back to him. And Brian De Palma said that this was the inspiration for the end of Carrie. He went and saw Deliverance and he was so shook by the hand coming up that he was like, I want to end my movie with a thing. And he does the same thing. A hand carries hand coming out of the grave. Mm -hmm. he, he felt it was so unexpected and so powerful that he, that it was, he claims that was the inspiration for Carrie. I wish it's, I wish when the credits roll, it stayed on John Boy a little bit longer. I thought that was kind of cool. I was like, oh, we're holding on him as he's processing and the credits are rolling. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to last for Even too longer. long. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he like blew the take. His stomach growled and he laughed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they only got one take of yeah, it. Yeah, and they ran out of film and yeah. they were like, that's the last roll. Yeah. Fuck. Well, John, go eat some crafty or something. Yeah. Too bad. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with our final thoughts on deliverance. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And we're back with Cinema Possessed, and we are talking final thoughts on Deliverance. Corey, I'm going to start with you. Um, I think this is a great movie. I think it makes you feel a lot of really intense things, but it also has a fun element to it, like a a chase kind of thrillery type feeling too, but very, very dark as well. <laughs> Um, I think the acting is incredible. I think it looks beautiful. The movie's really pretty, except for the day to night stuff that was kind of shitty. Um, but as somebody who's not looking at film through that lens as much, I don't think it would have bothered me if you wouldn't have been pointing it out as much. I think I would have just been like, oh, okay, this is just 1972 movie. Um, but besides that, yeah, I mean, I think this is great. I highly recommend I would watch this movie again. 
I assume I'll watch this movie several more times throughout my life. Justin, final thoughts? And what are you going to do with that blue? <laughs> what do you think I'm going to do with all that blue? <laughs> I'm going to keep the Blu-ray. Uh, I've said all there is to say about Deliverance. I think it's a great movie. I got to go back to the book one more time. I think the book is just as much of a masterpiece, if not more in some ways for me. It really resonated with me. It had me in tears at certain points. The mm. language of the book is so poetic and so eloquent. I was in awe at the speech, at the structure of everything, the language. There's so many passages in the book that I reread over and over again um, that are just not possible in the movie, uh, which is just a different uh, artistic language. So I appreciated both and I was glad that I had the companion of, of the book because it added more character than what the movie provided, more insight into Ed and what he was thinking and going through and his motivation behind everything. So I highly suggest if anyone liked the movie, check out the book. It's a real good read. I agree. Yeah, I love this movie. I love movies about men and I especially love ones that are smart enough to know what to deconstruct and what to subvert about male movies. And I think this movie is a perfect balance of an adventure thriller about masculinity that is also has something really powerful to say about it. And in a lot of ways is a cautionary tale about the pitfalls of masculinity. But at the same time, it's it's vouching for the idea of staying in touch with nature, staying in touch with your primitive side. I think the book is great as well. I love reading the book. I'll say things that the movie offers as the book doesn't. I think the 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 infamous scene itself is actually more nuanced and powerful in the film than it is in the book. Sure, I would agree with that. I think the way the um the mountain men are written in the book is it comes off a little more exploitation movie to me. The movie that scene is the opposite of something you would see in an exploitation movie. It's it's the most dramatic serious dramatic that the film gets and I think it's because of the performances from people like Bill McKinney uh, and Ned Beatty and John Voight. Yeah. And cowboy coward. Yeah. I loved I loved the nature themes a lot too. It really resonated with me the idea that like they were they were exploring something right before it's lost. Yeah. And in the world we live in today, it's a very real and scary thought as things go extinct mm -hmm. more and more. Um, as we're building more, as as the population is expanding, we're losing, not only are we losing touch with nature, but we're physically losing nature. Right. And it's a scary thought to imagine a world, you know, 30, 50, 100 years from now where it's a luxury to be able to to experience nature the way, the way that we've destroyed national parks and Yosemite and yeah. things like that and play, even you know, places in South America, like anything that's a tourist place is almost completely and utterly ravaged to the point. There's stories about Mount Everest where there's just trail, there's lines mm -hmm. now on the hike and garbage just everywhere. trash everywhere. It's disturbing. Human feces. Yeah. Dead bodies. And this movie is over 50 years old and, all, and even then they were talking about that stuff. They were warning about that stuff because it's only imagine what we're at today. Can't believe it's over 50 years old. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, 51 years old, I think. My calculations are correct. As far as my DVD, it's I like having it. I've had it for such a long time that I have a little bit of like nostalgic attachment to it. And it gave us a fine viewing experience, but I could, you know, I had to kind of adjust to the fact that the quality was significantly lower 
than what I'm used to. In fact, the special, uh, you know, the the bonus feature making of had higher quality versions of the footage in it than the actual movie itself, which is kind of a bummer. So I would love to upgrade this, and I think I will, but I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm not sure, but I love the movie too much to give away this DVD right now. So I'm going to hold on to it. Well, now that we've said everything there is to say about deliverance, what do you say we play? The Deliverance in Pop Culture Quiz. (laughs) I'm not going to know any of this. I didn't know any of the Deliverance pop culture references you were talking about. Oh, well, then you're going to maybe have your first lose of a quiz because you've won them all so far. Um, Rude, we essentially tied Yeah, we share. We share. Thank you. Share for life. Question number one. We all wear clothes, you agree? Yes. Well, if you make a trip down to Georgia's Chattooga River, where the film was shot, you're likely to find novelty t-shirts that contain the phrase, paddle faster, I hear blank. Oinks or something like that, like something with a pig. <laughs> paddle faster, I hear. Have you never seen a novelty t-shirt that refer- that uh, references deliverance? No. No. I'll give you a hint, it's not a line in the movie. If you heard a specific noise while I would have thought it was squeals. No, but it doesn't have anything to do with the pigs. Banjos? There you go. Uh, Paddle faster. I hear banjos. uh, Points for Justin. Number two. Speaking of banjos, what popular comedy series parodied dueling banjos in this showdown between its main character and documentary filmmaker Michael Moore? How are you doing? Justin? Family Guy? Justin is correct! It is Family Guy! Question number three. This southern fried comedic cover song draws parallels from Deliverance to what popular industrial rock song from 1994? Justin, closer. Nine Inch Nails. That's correct. This is a spoof cover band called Nine Inch Richards. And um, I'm embarrassed to say I had the single of this as a kid. (laughs) Question number four. Justin has all the points. Corey, you need to catch on up. In a 2008 episode of the long-running cartoon series South Park, what two influential Hollywood figures were portrayed repeatedly terrorizing the character of Indiana Jones, including this Deliverance-themed sequence. Well, well, Indiana Jones, what you doing in our neck of the woods? Now let you just drop them pants. Drop, just take them right off. Now, what do you guys want? Justin, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. That's correct! <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this 2004 adventure comedy about three friends on a backwoods journey to find missing treasure contains this deliverance referencing line. 
This is a metropolis. This place is very remote. Look at this. Wish I would have brought my dancing shoes so we can go clubbing. <laughs> Where are we? Corner of Bumfuck and you got a pretty mouth. This is from a movie? This is from a movie. Name that movie. For bonus points, you can name the actors if you recognize any of them. That might help you figure out what the movie is. Maybe Eli Roth? Is nope. Paul Schrader? I what hear maybe... Or no, not Paul Schrader. The guy from All the Pretty Girls. I hear maybe Justin Long? Nope. Hmm. I no, it's, I no it's not Paul Schneider. Schneider. Maybe 2004. 2004 adventure comedy about three friends on a backwoods journey to find missing treasure. Is Matthew McConaughey one of those voices? No. No? Is, um... But I'll give you a hint. Dak Shepard? Without Points a paddle? For Corey. Without a paddle? Points for Corey. Can you name the other two? Dak Shepard is one. Uh, what's his name from Scream? What's Can you name, name Matthew him? Lillard? Matthew Lillard is two. Can you name the final boy? Justin this Seth Green. Seth Green. I'm going to call that a tie game. Because Corey got so many points in that last one. She got two, uh, three points and that concludes the deliverance in pop culture game and that my friends is the show follow us on social media at cinema possessed pod where we announce next week's movie ahead of time and if you want to get in touch with us email us at cinema at gmail.com and if you want to get even more possessed Head on over to patreon.com slash cinemapossessedpod and unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials. That's our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about more than just what's in our collection. Last week, we talked about horror comedies. Who knows what we'll talk about next? Plus, you'll gain exclusive access to Patreon-only giveaways and community message boards. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get these pods. And Justin, what movie will we be talking about next week? We're talking about M. Night Shyamalan's 2002 masterpiece, Signs. Swing away, Justin. Swing Swing away. away. And as always, keep watching the movies you love and stay possessed. Later. See ya. Bye.